Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. So we're dropping an additional episode this week, and like the last one, this is also focused on the United Nations General Assembly. Leaders from around the world are in New York this week for high-level meetings, and there is lots on the agenda. The world is way behind on meeting the Sustainable Development Goals. The UN Charter is under attack after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And beyond that, there are humanitarian crises around the world that really need our attention and help. Libya and Morocco are just the latest from the past couple of weeks with their natural disasters. But there's also ongoing conflict in Sudan, coups across Africa, the growing climate crisis, which seems to underpin every single discussion. In our last episode, we spoke with Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., But outside America's UN mission, the other agency the White House deploys to channel development aid and assistance is USAID, which has a large budget to help countries in need. Samantha Power runs USAID. She's also a former ambassador to the UN and a Pulitzer Prize winner for her book on genocides. She sits on President Biden's National Security Council, and so she plays a very big role in the White House's foreign policy. I spoke with Power ahead of the high-level week of meetings. We discussed her priorities for the UNGA and also criticisms of the Biden White House that it has deprioritized multilateral organizations in favor of bilateral and regional arrangements, often with Washington calling all the shots. As always, subscribe to FP to watch these discussions live on video and to ask questions. There's a discount going on our site. Use the code FPLIVE when you sign up. Let's dive in. Administrator Power, welcome to FP Live. Great to be here. It's our pleasure. So let's start with a preview of next week. USAID has a very large portfolio. You deal with conflicts and crises around the world. What are your main priorities? Well, our main priorities, of course, align with the most urgent pressing needs in the world. So we are starting, uh, myself and Secretary Yellen are co-chairing an event with President Ruto and the Norwegians and the African Development Bank on food security. With all of the emergencies that you mentioned, a lot of resources are getting channeled into emergency response, into keeping people alive in the face of flooding or in the face of mass drought in the Horn of Africa and elsewhere. It's really important that we keep sight on the longer-term investments in resilience so that the next drought, the next flood is less damaging to human life and human welfare and livelihood. So that's what that event is about. Um, We will be discussing new investments, new means of bringing in the private sector as well to supporting agribusiness in a climate smart way. And I think it's going to end up having lasting uh, positive effects, what we do in in that meeting. 
Secretary Blinken and I then um, are going to be doing an event on democracy delivering, which I think also is really attempting to meet the moment. This is actually the second such event we've done together where instead of only focusing on the places where there is democratic backsliding, which is government's temptation, because there's always a crisis uh, to look at, look at the number of coups that have occurred in sub-Saharan Africa in, in recent months and years, we actually are bringing reformers together and saying, how do we help people who are actually liberalizing, who are opening up political space, not, not perfect Democrats, there are no perfect Democrats uh, anywhere, but where there is reform opening, where there are net gains in freedom, how do we ensure that the private sector is taking notice, that foundations are taking notice, that we at USAID are channeling maybe more fertilizer assistance there, more support for social safety nets, Again, taking some of the lessons for why democracy has been on its back heel for so long, partly it's because it's under attack, but partly it is that Democrats, when they come into office, are seen in many cases not to be delivering socioeconomically for citizens. So will there be a number of announcements there, but also to hear from leaders who are doing hard things and amplify what they are doing so people take more notice uh, of the fact that not all the news is is doom and gloom. There are actually uh, people who are willing to take real risks uh, to try to open political space instead of closing it. And then, of course, climate looms over everything, everywhere at all times. And so, yes, in the food security context, but uh, looking at what more we can do in terms of early warning systems, bringing NASA into to partnerships to engage with countries, and all of us, President Biden, myself, Secretary Blinken, will be doing uh, bilateral meetings and also regional meetings of areas where USAID and the rest of the U.S. government are doing bigger things now than we have been in the past. The Pacific Islands, President Biden will be doing a summit on that in Washington after the U.N. General Assembly. Central Asia, though, where USAID has uh, just recently expanded its presence. So, you know, there are a lot of places uh, where development needs are outpacing resources, and we are trying to come in as USAID, but also to bring with us other stakeholders, particularly the private sector. That really is thinking in terms of blended finance and catalytic capital is much more the way we're having to do business now, again, because the gaps are too great. Hmm. So food, democracy, the climate crisis, these are big ticket issues. I'll dive into each of them separately now. Um, on the food crisis, I'm curious how much of an impact the war in Ukraine has had. You mentioned President Ruto, so you visited Kenya recently, also Somalia. Um, give us an update on where things stand with moving the needle on the grain deal uh, in Ukraine, freeing up more access, and Russia's role in all of this. Well, let me maybe just first say a word on um, just how vital, I mean, I think people know by now, but how vital Ukraine is to the global food supply. Um, you know, many blue and yellow flags are flying across America, but a lot of Americans may not know that the yellow are the grain fields, the wheat fields uh, of Ukraine, the blue, the blue sky. And that really is so much of Ukraine's identity and so much of the GDP of the country was dependent on agriculture. So when Putin slams the door and blockades the ports in the Black Sea, as he did from the beginning of the war, then briefly uh, was convinced uh, to open up uh, Black Sea traffic in a way that was positive and had positive effects in undoing the damage, the toll is very, very significant. So in the first year when the ports were closed, you saw a huge spike in global food prices. And as you say, I traveled around the world and lived 
uh, engaging with uh, citizens who'd never dreamed that they would need food assistance and suddenly found themselves unable to keep up with the purchase price of just basic staples in the household. So that increases then the humanitarian needs that puts more pressure on the humanitarian budget that is already under fierce pressure because of climate related events, conflict and the like. So in the, the period though, where the Black Sea Grain Initiative came into being, very, very significant amounts of grain were able to move through the Black Sea ports, really almost approximating what moved before the war, before the conflict, which is extraordinary and really a tribute to Ukraine's farmers. But in that year where the Black Sea Grain Initiative was up and running, we, knowing you cannot count on Putin for, for five seconds, uh, never mind for, for a longer term, began to work with the Ukrainians and the Europeans on building out these alternative routes using river, rail, road. And so since July, when Putin reneged on his commitments and pulled out of the deal, I was actually there in Odessa the day after that happened and watched a port that had been bustling two days before just completely shut down because of the risk, again, of moving when you don't have uh, Russian acquiescence. But we have been able to increase by 800% the flow of food through these alternative routes. And what is important about that is both the revenue for Ukraine's farmers, of course, again, the people in the world who are dependent on Ukrainian uh, grains, foods, oils. But it's also really important when we think about Ukraine in the long term, which is harder to do uh, when it is caught up in conflict. But those are the routes that are already integrating Ukraine's economy now into the European market. And so as it moves toward European Union membership, a lot of that work is being done during the war, uh, just as the work on its democracy and checks and balances and so forth also has to be done right here and now. So I think the, the shorter answer to your question about what has been the effect of the pullout is less than what it might have been if we didn't have plan B, plan C, plan D built out. You saw also, though, Putin now making very clear that this is not about the Black Sea. This is not about fear of weapons. This is about destroying Ukrainian agriculture. So he's now attacking the river ports as well, which is going to make, again, maintaining the throughput in those routes uh, challenging because there are real risks for people who put themselves out there to be part of these, these operations. But, you know, less food in the global marketplace means higher prices than you would have if you had more supply. And what is really cynical about what Russia is doing, in addition to trying to destroy the Ukrainian economy, is Russia, which has itself had uh, fairly good uh, crop yields, harvest yields uh, in recent months and over the last year, is actually trying to come in and fill the breach and benefit on pulling out of the Black Sea grain deal. So prevent Ukraine from putting its grains out in the market and try to be uh, a grain supplier uh, of, of first choice. And so in a, sec in a sense to, in a more lasting way, displace Ukraine and Ukrainian farmers. Well, some of that is also for free, right? So it's distorting uh, a marketplace by going to African nations and saying, we could give this to you for free. And I'm just curious how, you know, in your role, how you deal with that. And when you speak to African leaders who may have this other free option, how do you get them to choose and, and actually focus on the market? Well, I know this will sound self-serving or or the product of, of uh, you know, a, a select interpretation of, of what the Russian Federation does. But I can tell you that in my travels, particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa, the main uh, comment that I've heard, I'd say from maybe four African heads of state, 
maybe even more, I'm doing the calculation in my head, is there's no delivery, there's promise and and no follow through. So actually those, uh, you're right, there would be a risk of market distortion, something we USAID you know, have to worry about as well. When we provide, you know, through the World Food Program, you know, free weed and free food commodities, it's always a risk. I I don't think that there would be due diligence on the Russian Federation side like there is by the World Food Program, because this is all a, a political stunt uh, and a way of drawing attention to its uh, great virtue when it's trying to to pull more people onto its side of the the, the broader uh, argument about Ukraine. But honestly, I've yet to go to a country that has seen delivery uh, on these promises. So, but we do see them moving in in a for-profit way um, uh, to try to capture new market share. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine. If you like this conversation, you will love the magazine. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. So let's talk about democracy now. You wrote a big essay this year about democracy. And in that, you said that 2022 may have been the peak for autocracies. I think that's fair. But that doesn't mean that the inverse is true. Um, democracy is, in fact, still in trouble around the world. And we're seeing that through coups in Africa, the rise of illiberal leaders around the world. How do you actually challenge that development? I know you said you wanted to center some of the more positive stories. But net-net, uh, democracy has been in decline for you know at least 15 years around the world. And even when your administration frames uh, this global fight between democracies and autocracies in black and white, uh, you travel the world, I travel the world. I think the reality is most other leaders around the world, they see this fight as as more gray than black and white. Well, there's a lot in your question. I would cite Freedom House. It's not a huge amount of consolation on, on democracy, uh, past, present, and future, but the net loss for democracy this past year is smaller uh, than it has been, I think, in 17 years. And namely, I think there's 35 countries that experienced some net loss. This is before uh, the more recent coups in Gabon and Niger, I will grant. Um, but the finding, I believe, is that 35 countries experienced net losses in terms of freedom and 34 net gains. And that differential is the smallest it has been. But no, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's no question uh, that democracy is uh, under attack in many places, that polarization has also, including in our own country, weakened the functioning of democracy, the ability. Uh, we talked earlier about delivery uh, and what citizens are actually looking for. You know, when you can't pass a budget bill, um, which is not just true in this country, but but as people, you know, go to extremes or are moved to extremes, finding common ground becomes much more challenging. So you have on top of that, of course, uh, the export of surveillance technology, a level of debt distress uh, that comes in part out of the pandemic and the amount of borrowing the countries had to do, but also out of the Belt and Road Initiative and some of these very large infrastructure projects uh, that were done on the basis of loans with fairly substantial uh, interest rates that have come home to roost for a lot of countries. That means 
again, fewer resources being dedicated to schools, to agriculture, to sanitation. I was in Tanzania and the government engaged with the government there, uh, which is you know, reforming and has just actually uh, lifted a six-year ban on opposition gatherings, uh, which I think is very significant. But they said, we're paying more to service our debt than we are on uh, agriculture and water and sanitation combined. And so again, there's democracy in terms of elections and making sure that election results are respected, which is, you know, again, something that we ourselves are, are struggling with here in the United States. Um, in ways that many would have thought unthinkable uh, not that long ago. But there, there's this other aspect of democracy and basically trust in institutions that comes from whether or not leaders are seen to be accountable to their people and, and delivering to their people. So you are right to say not everything is great. Uh, I certainly am not uh, suggesting by any stretch that everything is, is going swimmingly. Uh, what I'm trying to articulate is how do we need to modernize our approach to supporting Democrats and reformers, whether at the national level or subnational level? How do we support transparency, for example, around large uh, loans that are incurred, transparency at an earlier stage before countries get saddled with debt so that domestic politics can kick in and leaders who are doing these big deals that are going to saddle future generations you know, are held accountable in, in a relevant time frame? media uh, like yourself under attack in so many uh, countries around the world. USAID has created uh, a new insurance fund because part of the form of attack now is like that which Maria Ressa just just went through in the Philippines. You no longer even you know have to beat up a journalist or jail a journalist. The lawsuit can actually drive independent media out of business. And so USAID has worked with partners to set up an insurance fund that, that journalists can buy into for protection against what is a kind of modern tool of the autocrat or of the corrupt uh, oligarch. So we're, you know, trying to keep up, trying to have a fresher toolbox, including in the digital space, uh, that is more responsive to the threats to democracy of today than, you know, the old school toolbox, which is still very important of supporting elections, election monitors, civil society and the like. You know, just one quick comeback on that. I agree with much of what you're saying. Um, but when you, for example, mentioned that there are some countries that spend so much money on servicing their debt, I think part of their frustration is that the multilateral system that they rely on, that created the UN, that created the World Bank, it is those organizations that are giving them loans at tough rates that lead them into this cycle of debt servicing for a long time. Some of that frustration then uh, is directed at the United States, um, which I imagine is a challenge you have to deal with all the time. Well, I mean, just speaking as USAID, you know, and our model of assistance, you know, we are all about trying to ensure that countries move away from assistance because that's what every country wants. They want famously trade, not aid. And, you know, 14 of the countries in which we work have, you know, completely transitioned beyond assistance. Many of those countries are now key donors, like the Republic of Korea is, of course, uh, again, a, a very well-known example. And if you look at, for example, the PRC, we're at about, uh, as a U.S. government, $9 uh, in grants to every dollar in loan. The PRC is around the converse, maybe even higher uh, in terms of, and in their case, highly non-concessional, uh, you know, very, very high interest loans. So I frankly hear more about that. Um, maybe I would as a U.S. official. Um, 
Uh, I think people are heartened to see the MDB evolution agenda moving forward. What I hear about is more climate, climate, climate. You know, where are the big resources going to come from, even for middle-income countries to transition to renewables or what every country is grappling with, which is climate-proofing their economies and their humanity, uh, you know, to deal with uh, the the extent of extreme weather that's coming at them. And again, that's what this reform agenda is meant to address. But I, I take your point that there are sources of debt from many, many quarters. But right now, if you look at the countries in the greatest debt distress, it's mainly needing to renegotiate with the PRC and private creditors. Um, but the World Bank and, and IMF are certainly, uh, you know, and, and the rest of us are certainly critical to those conversations mm. as well. Mm. So let's go to climate since you brought it up. Is there anything in the next week uh, that we can look to as a source of hope in terms of negotiations or more money being freed up or leveraged for the countries that need it? People certainly are in need of hope. Um, but I will say that I've seen even just in the two and a half years that I've been in my job, um, maybe you could say by virtue of necessity, but certainly uh, uh, by, by, by virtue of collaboration, a shift toward understanding public sector financing as catalytic. Um, we've also seen, for example, the Development Finance Corporation here as part of the Biden administration, the US government, uh, dramatically increase uh, the scale of their climate investments. And you will continue to see rolling out of the DFC, which was OPIC before and you know wasn't um, necessarily development oriented in the way that the DFC has been mandated to be, you know, very, very large scale uh, climate investments um, moving us toward our targets. But you know, it's also true that up on Capitol Hill, the polarization that continues to to plague uh, debates about crazily climate science, um, you know, make it harder for us to be doing the the very significant public sector um, adaptation investments that we at USAID uh, would would like to be doing. But again, we're working through the Green Climate Fund. We're shifting, working with other stakeholders at the MDBs to make sure that uh, those institutions are doing this what is again the the number one clarion cry uh, from so many quarters, but doing this work and prioritizing it in the way that needs to be prioritized. You know, every year around about this time, there's a familiar sort of critique that the United Nations is paralyzed. And there's sort of, I think, an emerging uh, addition to that critique of late, which is that uh, the United States, and especially this administration, has been prioritizing clubs over um, a bigger sort of multilateral system. So uh, the G7, for example, which your colleague Jake Sullivan has called the steering committee of the free world, um, or the US, you know, investing a lot of time and energy in NATO, in other bilateral and regional arrangements, uh, a big focus on China, a big focus on the domestic economy. Given all of this, like, how do you see Ungo week for this administration. How do you see your role within that? I saw in the engagement with Ambassador Thomas Greenfield earlier a version of this of this question as well, and I was really struck by it because having been ambassador to the UN, you know, I can certainly say that uh, the amount of resources that the United States is providing to the UN, uh, I haven't done the math in advance of this uh, session, but is certainly at its high watermark, uh, steadily increasing. I mean, especially if you look. 
again, at humanitarian assistance. The Ukraine supplementals um, were written uh, wonderfully by Congress in the broadest possible way. So we at USAID were able to provide $11 billion in humanitarian emergency assistance last year, uh, which included Ukraine, but the vast majority of which went to the global south. Um, and the vast majority of which went to organizations like the World Food Program, uh, the State Department funding UNHCR, uh, us together funding UNICEF and organizations like that. So on the work out in the world that the UN is doing, whether in the humanitarian side or through peacekeeping or peace building, you know, the United States is right there. I think if anybody has, you know, rendered at least one part of the UN more marginal, it's the Russian Federation um, uh, at, at, at the UN Security Council. I mean, in bringing its desire to obstruct uh, in, in just as a congenital feature, it seems, of its foreign policy these days, that has made it really, really hard, uh, of course, to get action on Ukraine because it's invaded Ukraine, but well beyond Ukraine, really stymieing the work uh, of the UN Security Council. The last thing I'd say, because I think it's a point maybe not that broadly understood about the functioning of the UN, is when you get gatherings, whether the G7 or the G20, uh, or even under a NATO umbrella, or US-EU Technological Cooperation Council, or the Africa Leaders Summit, you know, which is a club uh, unto itself that we're investing more and more in, that is going to enhance over time the work of large global gatherings. You know, it doesn't, it's it's sort of a tempting idea that the UN, like everybody comes together into the, the GA and say, hey, you know, what should we do about, you know, climate insecurity in this part of the world? And, and somehow you reach some kind of critical mass of support for doing the right thing. It just, it doesn't really work that way. It works sort of as any large group gathering works where, you know, you 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 get consensus where you can get consensus. You build it out. You know, maybe the norms change or or the action plan you know gets adjusted as the the community, the coalition of the willing, as it were, within a large international organization uh, takes shape. But it you know it's not like you throw up a jump ball with 193 countries uh, and then progress happens. You have to build it out using as many kind of coalitions and overlapping coalitions. So. You know, it's what do they call it? You know, variable geometry uh, in service, though, of global public goods and and peace and security. Which, again, nobody's making any grand claim about the state of the world right now. I mean, the height of conflict, the height of displacement, all kinds of climate emergencies. But that makes both the subregional gatherings and and functional gatherings and a week like the one we're going to have next week all the more important. I'll close with another variable geometry question. Um, I'm curious how when you look at, say, um, the bad news out of Libya and Morocco in the last week, um, or even Ukraine, how you think through quantity of aid versus quality of aid that you administer, and you know, keeping in mind that a lot of these parts of the world um, struggle with administering or using the aid that they receive, there may be problems with corruption as well. How do you think through that? It's a great question. And again, I want to I want to stay focused on where you're focused, which is the emergency domain, sudden events that cause immeasurable heartbreak and wanting to be there and and mitigate the loss of life. We tend, and this is true as well of of our colleagues at the State Department, uh, which fund some of the international organizations that we don't fund, 
we tend to work through large, trusted, non-governmental partners, you know, like the International Rescue Committee or uh, Oxfam or Save the Children, or through large international organizations like the various UN agencies we've touched upon. So we can get scale and we can get speed that way. What we can't get is longer term, you know, local capacity. And so what we are trying to do at USAID is, for lack of a better metaphor, walk and chew gum at the same time, meet these needs in the moment, but also get better at building out the capacity of local organizations so that in a pinch, uh, they are in a position to receive an infusion of resources. Often they can be more cost-effective. There can be less overhead, certainly. There's a huge amount of local knowledge. Again, the international organizations and the NGOs tap those local uh, uh, fonts of knowledge as well. And often the international organizations subgrant or subcontract to local organizations. But I have made it a priority here, both in development, again, longer term, other forms of assistance, and in emergency relief to try to shift more resources into capacity building. Because in the end, that's a more enduring contribution. If every country had its own FEMA, that would make for more rapid response and again, more, more cost-effective response over time. But that that is really a, a work in progress. Administrative power, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that was Samantha Power, the administrator of USAID. Remember, you can take a look at who we have coming up on our website, foreignpolicy.com slash live. Next week, it is Heather Cox Richardson, the great American historian and Substack star. Subscribers can send in questions and I will try to ask them on your behalf. As always, use the code FPLIVE for a neat discount. And that is it for this week. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. 
To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.